so today, you all should be veterans and near pros at giving Bible studies. Um, today, we're going to be talking about the millennium, which is a very exciting prophecy, maybe one of my favorites, because it's very simple and easy to understand, but it's also very exciting. Um, so we're going to be doing a slightly different format than the little papers you've had. I split it up into three questions and put each of the verses that go under each question there for you. So if you want to just write on the blank side of your paper or do whatever you can, that's there for you if you need it. If you don't want it, don't use it. <clears throat> So to start a Bible study, it's good to kind of grip your audience and start out with a question or something to involve them. Um, how many of you have wondered or maybe have thought, okay, well, Jesus is coming. He's going to take us to heaven. Then what? Has that ever crossed your mind? Then what? Are we just going to live forever? Is that the end of everything? Um, but the Bible teaches that there is some, a very important process that happens after Jesus comes, and it's called the millennium. The millennium is a word that just means thousand years. And this prophecy is taught in Revelation, and there's a lot of different beliefs and theories, kind of crazy, kind of wild, that are taught and believed out there. But today, we are just going to be looking at what the Bible teaches about the millennium. Sound good? All right, um, we're going to be kind of teaching slash I'll give you the Bible study, so let's pray to begin. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word and the clarity we can receive through it, that you have given us prophecy that we might know beforehand the things that will take place, so when they do come to pass, we may believe. Lord, please send your Holy Spirit to speak through me and to um, speak to the minds of everyone listening that we might receive wisdom that we might be empowered and equipped to give this Bible study to those who are seeking after truth. We love you. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to talk about what happens next. Jesus comes the second time. What happens next? We're going to be covering three questions. What events happen at Jesus' second coming? What events occur during the 1,000 years? And what events occur after the 1,000 years? Three simple questions. That's what we're going to be looking at today, and we're going to break it down. Um, the purpose, if you do want to fill out the purpose on your little sheets, is to show that the millennium takes place after the second coming. There is a lot of confusion out there on this topic, so we're going to point that, make a point that the millennium takes place after the second coming. We're also going to show that this period, this 1,000 years, has a purpose. The purpose is um, it's for judicial review and vindication of God's character. Judicial review and vindication of God's character. Those are our three purposes for the millennium study. Yes. I'm sorry? Repeat them? Okay. To show the millennium takes place after the second coming... So second coming, then millennium. That it is a period of judicial review. And it is a vindication of God's character. And we will be looking at those texts. But this is just an overall summary. And then the center it part of your little papers there. 
Um, during the, the millennium, Christ will bring the great controversy to an end. This is very exciting news. Um, and you have covered the great controversy. That's one of the very first topics we talk about with our Bible study contacts. So they should understand that. Um, so during the millennium, the great controversy will be brought to an end. And you can tell that to your contacts with lots of excitement, so they will also be excited. This is a very good thing. So let's get started uh, with our study. Number one, what events occur at Jesus' return? Let's go to the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Who would like to read it? A quick volunteer. Javid wants to. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So what is this verse, what are these two verses telling us? What are these two verses telling us? There are two resurrections. That's right. There's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of condemnation. Very good. Okay, let's go to Acts 24, 15. A few pages to the right. Acts 24, 15. On the same subject, we're still looking at what events occur at Jesus' second coming. Acts 24, 15. We'll have a volunteer read that nice and loud for us. Quickly. Someone, volunteer. Oh, okay. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Okay, good. There will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Mine says the just and the unjust. So from these two verses... We are learning that there are how many resurrections? Dos. Very good. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 16 and 17. We can have a volunteer read that for us. Very good. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Okay, so in verse 16, it is talking about the dead in Christ. So that is the righteous, right? That makes sense. Dead in Christ are the righteous. And they rise first. Very good. Um, When you are giving a Bible study... Feel free to involve the person you're giving Bible studies to. No one likes to just sit there and be preached at. So the more questions and the more ways you can involve them, like I'm going to be involving you, the better. The more they'll get it and be excited about what you're studying. So the dead in Christ or the righteous will rise first. This implies that there is a still a second resurrection to come, right? And who would those, what resurrection would that be for? Who would that be for? The second one. The wicked, right? Because the righteous are raised first. Okay, let's go to Revelation chapter 20. We're still covering the first question. What events occur at Jesus' return? Revelation 20, 
I heard you guys went over Revelation 20 last night with Daniel a little bit. Revelation 20 is the chapter on the millennium. So we're going to be here quite a bit. You can either mark it or keep your finger in it or memorize it. Revelation 20 is the millennium. So we're going to be reading verses 4 and 5. Someone can read. There you go. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Okay, very good. So verse 4 talks about who? What kind of things are, what words are they using to describe the people in Revelation 20 verse 4? We see beheaded for their witness to Jesus. We call those martyrs. Okay, who else? What do you read in verse 4? Who else are described there? Okay, people who didn't worship the beast or the image. Um, what else? Okay, and didn't receive his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Um, so this is describing, again, the righteous. And it says they did what with Christ for how long? They lived and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. There's our millennium right there. Millennium and 1,000 years is the same meaning. Okay, but verse 5 tells us something about the other, because we know there's a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, the unjust, the just. We're talking about the righteous. What happens to the other group of people? We see that in verse 5. Someone tell me. Was anyone listening? You can read it again, quickly. I'm sorry? Okay, but the rest of the dead did not live again until... The thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, right? Does that make sense to you guys? Because if it doesn't make sense to you, it will not make sense to whoever you're giving the study to. Is that clear? Okay. So at this point, we've just covered number one, the events that occur at Jesus' return. And repetition deepens the impression. Have you ever heard that statement? Repetition deepens the impression. Repetition deepens the impression. So it is okay to summarize. It is okay to say things over. It is okay to restate. Because the more times you say these things, the more that these people will understand what you are teaching them. Like in this room... Most likely, the majority of us know this already, and we've heard it before, so I could probably zoom right through this, and it'd be like, oh, yeah, cool. But for those of you that will be giving studies to people who've never heard this before, they're gonna, their mind is just going to be blank, and you're going to have to go slow. You might have to re, you know, go back to some of the verses, repeat, 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 repeat. Okay, so at this point, you've given the first bullet. Now let's stop and summarize with your Bible study contact. And you can do this by asking them a question. So what is something new that you have learned? Um, or you can say, so what have these verses taught us? Or if you don't want to ask the question, 
Although asking the question is good because then you can kind of see how much they really understood and you can gauge where you're at, if you can go deeper or if you need to stay a little bit more superficial in your study. Okay, so it's good to ask them questions or of course you can just summarize and say, so now from these verses we have seen that there are two resurrections and the righteous are resurrected first and they live and reign with Christ for 1,000 years, but the, the rest of the people, the dead, the wicked, remain dead until the thousand years are finished. So they can just kind of get a nice summary of the verses you've looked at. And then you can just ask if they have any questions. Because slow, the slower you go and the more you repeat, the more they're just going to absorb. Okay? Any questions from you in the audience so far? Okay, so let's now go to number two. What events occur during the 1,000 years? Let's go to, well, we're already in Revelation 20, verse 4. At the very beginning of verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. So here we see the righteous are going to be sitting on thrones, right? That's kind of exciting. Let's go to Romans, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, chapter 8. Verses 15, 16, and 17. What is going on during the 1,000 years? Romans 8, chapter 15, 16, and 17. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so, be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. <clears throat> but here we see that God and Jesus are adopting us, and we are children of Jesus, and we are joint heirs with him, right? So whatever Jesus now uh, can obtain because he has died and rose again, um, he is going to share all that with us. We are going to be joint heirs. So, of course, we know that Jesus has now arisen and he can sit on the throne next to God the Father. We also can sit on thrones when we go to heaven. Isn't that exciting? Jesus is giving us the same opportunities and privileges that God the Father has given him. Um, I just love that thought. So we know that when we go to heaven, we are going to be joint heirs. Okay, let's go to one more verse on this. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, the words in my Bible are read. That means Jesus is speaking. And he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So during the 1,000 years, the righteous are going to be in heaven with Jesus and God the Father sitting on thrones, being joint heirs with Jesus. This is kind of God and Jesus' honeymoon time with the righteous. Um, because while this is all going on and we're all having fun and it's, everything is perfect and blissful, the dead are still asleep. They're missing out on the honeymoon, which is sad for them. Um, but 
Right now, this is our time to spend with God and with Jesus. However, you can't sweep everything under the rug forever, right? There is still some, some skeletons in the closet we need to deal with, and we're going to be looking at that in a little bit. Let's go to a few verses um, and see what's happening with Satan during this time. While we're up with God, having a blast, Satan is down here. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 20. That's the, very good, that's the chapter on the millennium. Revelation chapter 20, and someone can read the first three verses. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, very good. So what's happening in these verses? You tell me. Satan is bound. Where is Satan bound? Where? The abyss. Okay. Um, mine says, what does mine say? The bottomless pit. Some versions say the abyss. Does anyone have a version that says something different than bottomless pit or abyss? No one? Okay. Well, the bottomless pit or the abyss, the Greek word is abusos which basically means without form or void. Have you heard that before? Where can you think in the Bible is similar language? Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Let's go there together. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Very good. So before God created a lot of the earth, there was earth, obviously, but it was void. What does void mean? Nothingness, right? Um, it was without form. So there probably weren't beautiful mountains or oceans or trees or any form or beauty to it. And darkness was on the face of the deep. Does that sound like a fun, happy place to live? No, not to me either. So again, after we have gone up with God at the second coming, the earth is going to return to its icky, awful state before God created it, right, in Genesis. And again, this is before God will recreate the earth, so it's without form and void. But Satan has to be stuck here for how long? A thousand years, which... Compared to how long he's been alive isn't that long, but I think that's long enough to spend in a place that is without form, void, and dark. And what's even worse is, what did the verse tell us in, I think, verse number three? What does it tell us? It says, he should deceive the nations no more. So obviously, the righteous are in heaven, the wicked are dead. No one else is alive during this time. Satan has nothing to do. Except think, except reflect, and remember all the bad things he's done, um, all the terrible things that he has brought to this earth, and now where has it got him? Nowhere, right? 
Still, he has not become like the Most High. He has still not exalted himself. He hasn't gotten where he wanted to go. And this is kind of like, in um, a friend of mine's words, Jacob Gibbs, he said, this is like the devil's hangover. Um, this is a time where he, he, he's just bored. He can't do anything except think and reflect and remember. And sometimes that is one of the hardest things I know we have to deal with sometimes is think, right, or remember. Um, and so this is the time for the devil. This is a really good punishment, I would say, 1,000 years all by himself to remember all that he has done. Okay. Um, let's go, what will the earth look like? We've kind of talked about it, but there's a few other verses in the Bible that hint towards what it will look at, look like. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 through 27. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form, and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heaven were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce, fierce anger. And thus had the Lord said, the whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. You know what I love about these verses? They don't describe a very nice place. But at the very end, what does God say? Yet I will not make a full end. We know that in our lives, God can make something awful and ugly beautiful, right? Um, this might be a nice spot for you to interject your own personal testimony. You don't have to go through your whole life story. But you can just say um, just a little something about how this verse or how God has turned something ugly, beautiful, or whatever. When you're giving a study, it's nice to make it personal um, so that whoever you're studying with can kind of, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? They can relate, yes, relate to you um, or what you're studying. So here we're talking about the awful, ugly earth, but God is making, not making a full end of it. He is going to recreate it. God can do the same things in our lives. Even though our lives may be ugly, um, dark, without form or void, God can make something beautiful out of us. And that simply can be your little testimony right there. But at least, you know, they might feel that, that darkness or that void in their own lives. And this is just a good way to bring a nice thought from kind of an ugly verse. Okay? So that's just something you can do. Um, it's nice to aim to have at least one personal testimony, personal thought in each of your studies. Questions? Comments? Okay, we will continue. Let's go. There's one other verse in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 19 through 21. This again is a passage talking about the earth at this time. Okay. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. 
prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. Okay, so there's another passage that you can throw in about the world at this time. You know, these verses are kind of a downer, so you don't have to throw it in, but at least you have it available if you want to. Um, Okay, so that's what Satan is doing during the 1,000 years. That's what the earth looks like during the 1,000 years. Let's go back to what the righteous are doing in heaven. This is the exciting part. This is what I get excited about. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 20. Very good. And we will read verses 7, 8, 7 and 8. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. What are the righteous doing during this time? Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Very good. I actually told you the wrong verse. <laughs> you knew that. <laughs> okay, read verse 4 and 12 in the same chapter, Revelation 20, verses 4 and 12. And I saw thrones, they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in, on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Twelve? Mm-hmm. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Okay, so at the beginning of verse 4, it says, John, who's writing, says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and what was committed to them? Judgment. We are going to be not only enjoying our plush thrones in heaven, we are going to be judging when we sit in those thrones. And then verse 12 who um, are we judging? And the dead were judged according to their works. So the dead are the wicked, right? Okay, so we're going to be um, judging the dead or the wicked, and they are judged according to their works. Isn't that interesting? Judged according to your works. I don't think I need to say any more, but some people think that love is all we need, um, which is true. We do need love, but works and faith and love are all one together. You need all of them. We will be judged according to our works. The Bible just told us that. Okay, so we are going to be judging. Now, why do you think, why do you think God is going to have us judge the wicked? Is this necessary? For those medical students, this might seem like a huge violation of HIPAA, right? Um, we're just going to be able to peek inside the secret lives of everyone, anyone we want. Um, why? Why? Why is this necessary? Okay. Blah, blah, blah. I couldn't really tell what you were saying. <laughs> okay, to see if God was just. What if... Okay.
Okay. Okay. Now let's say this is a terrible example, especially since my mom is right in the back. But let's say my mom, and, my mom is like my best friend. That's not, I'm not saying let's say. She is. Um, <laughs> but let's say I'm in heaven and I'm sitting on my throne and I'm looking around and all of a sudden it dawns on me that my mom's not in heaven. Whoa. Do you think I'm going to have some questions for God? Do you think I might shed a tear or two? What if he just said, that's the way it is? You just have to accept it. And you can't cry because we're in heaven. <laughs> we would probably start questioning God, right? Um, questioning his fairness. Well, my mom was a good person. Why isn't she here? But if I have the opportunity to go back through every moment of her life, and see when she rejected God or when he tried this or when, and she just kept rejecting him, then at least I would know. And my questions would be answered, and I would have faith in God, right? I would trust that he is truly just, he is truly fair, he is truly merciful, because I, I would be able to see how many times he was reaching out to her and trying and grasping her towards him, but she just kept rejecting him, right? Um, there's another good chance for you to throw in a personal testimony because a lot of people have problems with God and the judgment aspect of his character. And so this is a great way to show that God is so fair, he's going to put himself on trial. During one, the 1,000 years of the millennium, we get to judge God. That's pretty heavy, but that's how fair and just God is. That's how merciful he is. We can judge him. He will let us look through all pages of history, everyone's life, and see if all, that, all his decisions were fair. Any questions on that? I have a couple more verses on this topic. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. Therefore, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. And verse 6, And these things, brethren, I have in a... F That's good. It was just verse 5. Oh. <laughs> Did I write 6 up there? Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Sorry for the confusion. So 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, it says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. So it's saying not now did God give us the right to judge other people, right? We have to wait until the appointed time. It's not appropriate to start judging people and flipping through their life history now. Um, but it says that the Lord will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then what? What does it end with by saying? The end of verse 5. Then each one's praise will come from God. We have to know and then we will praise God because we will find out that he truly is fair and just. Now let's go to the same book Chapter 6, verses 2 and 
Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Okay, so here again it's telling us that the saints will judge the world um, and even angels. You know what else I like a good point to bring out, I like about the millennium is... Or maybe I should save that thought. Well, no, we'll just talk about it now. Because we see the righteous are resurrected, right? And the dead are still dead. And so we go up to heaven and we judge. And then we come back, which we're going to look at in just a minute. That's why I was hesitating. And that's when God is going to execute his judgment, right? So God is not going to execute his judgment until he gets a unanimous vote from all the righteous that his judgment is fair. Isn't that amazing? Because in reality, he could just, you know, raise the righteous and kill the wicked all in one, and we could just be done with it, right? But he is giving us this extra 1,000 years, and he's not going to execute his judgment on the wicked until we've all judged the wicked together. It's like he's, he's hoping, he's holding out that we might find a reason why he doesn't need to, right? Um, that's how much God loves us. That's how much he doesn't love to just rain fire and brimstone and kill people. Um, He is going to have us all judge, and then he will execute his judgment. That's another way you can find the love of God in the millennium and hell. Um, There is a lot of love there. Okay, so now we are going to move on. We've covered what events occur at Jesus' return what events occur during the 1,000 years, and now we're going to look at what events occur after the 1,000 years. Is everyone clear on question one and two, what we've covered? Any questions? Do you think you could replicate that in a Bible study? I see one person nodding their head. Thank you, Aaron Viscara. Okay, so now we're looking what happens at, after the 1,000 years. Revelation chapter 20. Verses 7, 8, and 9, which Marjana gave us a little preview to. We'll read them again. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7, 8, and 9. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosened out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the, of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is a sand of the sea. And they um, went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Okay, so when the thousand years have expired, Satan is... Released, And what is the first thing he does after thinking and pondering for 1,000 years? What is the first thing he goes and does? Yeah, the same thing he always does. Yes, exactly. He tries to attack the city. He gathers up all the wicked because now they're resurrected again. And he tries to attack the city of God. Now, what is the city of God? This is a little, little confusing part in this study because it talks about the city coming down in the next chapter. It's not necessarily chronological, Revelation 20. But, so we'll just skip over to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2 to make sense of this city that Satan is going to try to attack. 
Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, so that's what Satan is trying to attack. Um, now, an interesting point here. Let's look at what the walls are made of. Someone read out of that same chapter, verse 18. Verse 18. The construction of its walls was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. How many people have seen jasper? I haven't. Um, but if you go to verse 11, he can also read verse 11. It'll give us a little clearer understanding of jasper. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Clear as crystal. So the walls of the New Jerusalem are see-through, transparent, right? Now just take a snapshot, freeze time for a second. Here comes this beautiful city with all the redeemed inside sitting on thrones. And the wicked are being gathered up with Satan around this city. And they can see straight through the walls and we're looking eye to eye. What a moment of realization for these wicked Probably for the righteous, too. Um, what are they feeling? What are they thinking? Um, you would think that they would be repentant, but they're not because they continue on to attack the city. Let's go back and read the rest of the chapter. We'll read. Verse 9 says, They surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down out of heaven and devoured them, right? Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, you've had the study on hell, right? Okay, so I won't touch on that. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Verse 14. I love this verse. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Isn't that exciting? Not only are the wicked cast into the lake of fire, but death is cast into the lake of fire. Never again will there be death in our lifetime. And that's forever and ever and ever and ever. Isn't that wonderful? Death is going to be cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Pretty solemn. Any questions? See, this is why I like the millennium, because it gives you a lot of information, but I think it's pretty short and it's pretty simple. It's easy to understand, really, yeah. Fire comes down from the 
15 years after the war expired. Two different institutions and the same people with different interpretations of these things. Well, like I said, it's not necessarily written in chronological order. That's why it has New Jerusalem coming down in verse 21 when it really should fit quite perfectly right before verse 8. So it's the same group of people if you study it and look at it. Um, it's just two different, yeah, maybe two different perspectives. Or he forgot something, so he's adding it back in, maybe. Yes? Well, the investigative judgment starts while some people are alive, but the when God's judgment happens since 1844 till whenever. But that, this right here is talking about our judgment. It's not written in chronological order. So we've already learned that we're judging and then it brings them to life again. And it's kind of weird. There you go. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Right. So the last few verses of this chapter aren't really in order, so that's why it can be confusing. Any other questions? Okay, so let's go to... Did you have a question? No. Okay. Let's go to our appeal. Um, let's go to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah is right smack in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah chapter 5, and we will begin in verse 1. I'm just going to read. Um, it says, now, is everyone there? Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel or his people, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold oppression, for righteousness, but behold a cry for help. 
I love this parable. I think it fits perfectly with the millennium. Because here it says God did all that he could. He tried and tried and tried. But there are some people, there will be some people who will reject his love and will reject him ultimately. Um, And here he can say, judge me between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done? God has done all that he can um, at that time. However, right now, as we are standing here today, there are no walls between us and God. There is no fine jasper wall. Nothing is separating us. In fact, let's go to Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Here it says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today, nothing can separate us from Jesus' love. It it hasn't reached the point yet where we have to wait outside and look in at the righteous not saying that that's where we will be. Um, But why don't you ask your contact, what group would you see yourself in? You know, and how do you get there? What is keeping you from landing inside the city? I hope that I will be able to stand next to each one of you on the sea of glass inside the city. Let's do all we can to make it there. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this study. Lord, we thank you um, that you are so just and fair and that you give us all the chances to prove you so that we might give you our praise. Lord, please help us to understand and please bless our mouths that we might share this with someone who needs it, that we might um, just lather it in your love. Every harsh verse, um, let us find your redemption story in it. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue to bless us as we continue to look at more... uh, Bible studies this afternoon. We love you and we thank you. Amen.